Yes, we are in the book of Judges, and if you have a Bible, I know you do, would you turn in your scriptures there to the very first chapter, and Katie's going to read the first eight verses of that chapter just to give us a flavor for the whole book. Today is just an introduction to both Judges, and by the way, this is actually a series in Judges Ruth, and Ruth is going to help us kind of save the day at the end and bring in some really good news. So these two are together, but today we're introducing them both. So Katie, yes, would you please read for us, uh, and let me pray before you do that, yeah? Yeah, Holy Spirit, we are grateful that Jesus left you to help us understand, to remember, and to teach, and to counsel, and to comfort, and we say yes, we need all of those things. So we pray as Katie reads this scripture, open our ears, let us be counseled, let us be comforted, let us be taught by you, in the name of Jesus, amen. Yeah, so this is Judges 1, 1 through 8. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, Who of us is to go up first to the fight against the Canaanites? The Lord answered, Judah shall go up. I have given the land into their hands. The men of Judah then said to the Simeonites, their fellow Israelites, Come up with us into the territory allotted to us to fight against the Canaanites. We will in turn go with you into yours. So the Simeonites went with them. When Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and Perizzites into their hands, and they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. It was there that they found Adonai Bezek and fought against him, putting to rout the Canaanites and Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, and they chased him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Then Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. They brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. The men of Judah attacked Jerusalem also and took it. They put the city to sword and set it on fire. Thank you, Katie. So what we have here is conflict in the Middle East. <laughs> People in the Middle East fighting over the property of the Middle East and who it should belong to. And so that was just a snippet. And this is kind of the character of the entire book. But what we want to know is, well, what's going on behind it? Is God a part of this in any way? And if he is, we know that he is. What is he saying? What is he doing? And what are these people doing? So this small account just kind of gives you a really good taste of what's going on. But before we get into kind of those details and talk about some of the episodes of of judges, I want to put us all in the context of the big story. So where does this dark and heavy and intense book fit in the unfolding story of God? And I think the best way to do that is to let you listen to a summary that the Bible Project has produced for the entire, well, it's actually a summary of Genesis 1, but they extend it to be a summary of the entire Old Testament. So Katie's going to read that. Give her your attention. Maybe it would be helpful to close your eyes, but just try to listen carefully to the bits and pieces of this summary of Genesis 1 and, in fact, all of Old Testament history. Genesis begins with God taking disorder and darkness and creating out of it order, beauty, and goodness. He creates a world where life can flourish as well as creatures to inhabit that world. God creates humans in his image. They are created to be reflections of God's character out of the world, and they are appointed as representatives to rule God's good world on his behalf. They are 
to there to harness the world's potential to care for it and to make it a place where they can multiply and flourish. And the humans are given a choice, represented by the tree of good and bad. Will they trust God's definition of what is good and bad, or will they seize autonomy and define good and bad by themselves? Unfortunately, humanity listens to the voice of a mysterious snake figure in the garden. And in an instant, the whole world begins to spiral downward. But God's promises that one day a seed or descendant will come from the woman and will deliver a lethal strike to the snake's head. Such a wonderful summary, and, and this comes from uh, Tim, um, Tim, Mackey, thank you, uh, of the Bible Project, and it's a wonderful summary, and I want to look at the last couple of lines there uh, and really hone in on this, because this lands well to help us understand both the books of Judges and the book of Ruth. So uh, Tim says, and in an instant, the whole story begins to spiral downward. And this is this human reality that we see many times in the scriptures. And actually, if we look at our own lives, don't we begin things well? Think of perhaps a marriage. When we come to that altar and we're ready to say those vows, we've been preparing well and we've been focusing, and it always begins so well. Intentions are high and hopes are high. And very often, over the course of years, uh, things spiral downward. And as we get deeper into who we are and as we have a history together, that history becomes sprinkled with both love and care and affection as well as selfishness and, and hurtfulness and woundedness. And things tend to go downward. It's the way that we are as humans in a broken world. Definitely the case in Old Testament history. But then there's this wonderful redeeming part. But God promises that one day a seed or a descendant will come from the woman and will deliver a lethal strike to the snake's head. And this is actually the story that we're going to be looking at when we come to the book of Ruth. Because it's another of three episodes in the Old Testament that speak of this continuing revelation of a descendant who would come to destroy uh, the work of the devil. Which is exactly what Jesus said. So, here we go. Again, we're looking at context for the book of Judges. So let's take a look at the process, the a strategy that God uses in redemptive history. This strategy is used by God over and over three times in the Old Testament and once in the New. And here's what it looks like. God chooses or creates a sacred space. Let's think about the Garden of Eden. It's the first of the three movements. So God creates this garden. So in the midst of a chaotic planet where water and darkness is just kind of driving things around, God creates a garden, a peaceful and flourishing garden. He cre then he places within this sacred space a chosen people. So in movement one, who are the chosen people? Yeah, they're the only people. So that makes it really easy. He chooses, he creates Adam and Eve. Then he gives the chosen people a specific mission. What was the mission of Adam and Eve? Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over it, care for it. So there was a very specific mission. Then he gives abundant provision. What was the abundant provision for Adam and for Eve? Yeah, everything on the planet, pretty much. He said, I've given you seed-bearing plants. I've given you the green plants. He's filled the earth with animals, which was unnecessary, but highly entertaining. And for all of them, he gave food. He gave abundant provision. 
And then finally, divine partnership. And the divine partnership in movement one with Adam and Eve is fairly subtle, but where do we see some sense of partnership between Eve, Adam, and God? Yeah, we have this kind of short little thing that we're just kind of told about in passing that God seems to show up perhaps daily to go for a walk with Adam and Eve. And we would assume that in that is some relational connection and probably a lot of question asking because Adam and Eve are innocent and brand new to this idea of life and of creation. And so they're probably asking God about different things. And God will continue to use this pattern. Let's talk about the second movement. The second movement has to do with a sacred space that's actually a barge. So think of Noah's Ark. I don't know if you've thought of it this way before. The Bible Project does a wonderful way of talking us through this, explaining that the barge was really kind of creation and the garden all over again. It was, in some ways, Eden. In some ways, not so much. Three decks inside a ship, lots of poop, probably things about it that weren't as Eden-like, but it still was creation being carried in a sacred space to preserve it and to cause it to expand. There was a chosen people, Noah's family, He was a righteous man who worshiped God, so he was chosen. There was also, um, excuse me, there was a mission. What was the mission of Noah? To carry this boat through the storm by the grace of God and then to launch creation all over again. Now with four men and four women instead of one man and one woman, Noah's family. Then there was also abundant provision, and this is just creation all over again. You remember how he sends out the birds? Is it ready yet? Is it time? Have things popped up and sprouted? Are the trees back? Are the grains back? Is the fruit back? And when it was ready, abundant provision was there. And then finally, there's the divine partnership. And God has this covenant with Adam, and he says, I will never destroy the earth again. Notice how this was the dark waters of chaos returning. God had created humanity. God had given humanity choice. Humanity chose poorly, and chaos came back, and the waters came back, and the breath of life was taken away as people could no longer breathe underwater. So creation was undone so that it could start again. Now, the third movement is the movement that the book of Judges is in. So, first of all, what is the sacred space in this third movement of God's redemptive story? The land of the Canaanites is the sacred space. Now, in this case, it's not sacred yet. It's actually highly defiled. And I want to remind you that God isn't only concerned about the people of Israel and has no care for the Canaanites, but we actually know in the story, because the scriptures tell us, that God kept the the, uh, Israelites in Egypt for 400 years so that the sin and the brokenness of Canaan, Canaan could reach its full extent. He was giving opportunity for the Canaanites to repent, to stop the murderous way that they lived, the sacrificing of children, the marauding and destroying of their neighbors. He was giving space for repentance for all that. It didn't happen. So now God is ready to create this sacred space, which he promised to Abraham. Remember, 500 years before this, Abraham came into the land. He says, take a look at it all. This is going to be sacred space for you and your people. I'm going to create a nation in you, and you will live here. So the chosen people, I've already kind of given it away, are the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The abundant provision, it's called a land of milk and honey, basically meaning you can make homemade ice cream there in abundance. Those are the primary ingredients of homemade ice cream. It was a land that was already developed. It had cities. It had farms. It had all that it needed. 
uh, and then finally divine partnership. And that's what the covenant was all about, where God said, if you will cooperate with me and love each other well by following my commandments, I will be present with you and I will cause your lives to be long and I will cause your lives to abound. You will flourish. And out of your flourishing, you will not be the cool kids, but you will be the nation that invites other nations into the life that you are living in partnership with me. All super good news. God's wonderful plan. So we are in the middle of this third movement where the people of Israel are trying to work out this cooperative relationship with God. So let's dive in just a little bit. The primary characters in the book of Judges are God himself, the descendants of Abraham, and the current residents in the land of Canaan, and then the judges. The judges. Judges are leaders. They're a specific kind of leader. Before the period of judges, what was the kind of leadership that Israel was under? What was Moses' leadership? It was a leadership of deliverance. It was a leadership of being rescued from slavery. Then they were under the leadership of Joshua. What kind of leadership did Joshua provide? He was a warrior, and he led his people in to invade this land of Canaan together as a single nation to take it over. Joshua was not fully successful because the people were not fully obedient. So by the time of Joshua's death, the entire land is not possessed by the Israelites. Parts of it are, parts of it are not. So now we're in kind of phase two of the takeover where God raises up the judges to continue this process of making this land sacred, of creating a stronghold of peace and the goodness of God. Just as in Eden, there was order, there was beauty, and there was goodness. God's desire was to establish order, beauty, and goodness in the land of Canaan as an example to the world. And so they were in kind of phase two of taking it over. This is about a 200-year period. The judges had two primary functions. One of them we know fairly well. The judges were actually in the land of Canaan to execute the judgment of God on the other nations. As I mentioned before, and Daniel will go into this in depth next week, God was not just judging his people, but he was judging the people of the earth. The land of Canaan was filled with many tribes that were highly violent people. You saw in that little snippet where we heard about that one king. Do you remember what he said? It seemed so cruel that the Israelites cut off his thumbs and his big toes. But what was his response to that experience? He says, I deserve this. This is God bringing justice to me because I cut off the thumbs and the big toes of 80 kings, 80 chiefs, 80 leaders of 80 tribes around me, and I made them spend the rest of their life like dogs under my dining room table. That's just kind of the feel of the land. That's what was going on. That was the culture. That was the nature of life in Canaan. Uh, we could go on to talk about other gods and child sacrifice and the burning of children and just so many horrific things that were done. God is coming, in a sense, in the way that he judged the whole earth through the flood. He's now judging Canaan through this local conquering of the people. And this is what the judges were to do. The other reality of judging is internal within the land. God also set these judges up for the sake of his own people. Let's read just a little bit in Judges 4. Chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Here's what it says. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at the time. 
She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided, to have their disputes decided. So she was a judge, number one, a judge for God of foreign nations that needed to be condemned and removed, but she was also an internal judge to to, uh, discern disputes between the peoples. And this was a very local government. If you think about it uh, in light of our country, we have the federal government and we have state government. The judges were to kind of be governors of states. It was more localized. It was leadership that was meant to focus on the particular needs of a particular clan or tribe or two. And it was to be more, you know, more localized, more empathetic leadership according to the need of each clan and each tribe. All right, the progression of the book. This is fun. If you read the first line of chapter 1 and the last line of chapter 21, the last chapter, you have the entire arc of the book. Let's take a look at this. So Judges chapter 1, sorry, let me get there, says this. The Israelites asked of the Lord. The Israelites asked of the Lord. Where does the book begin? It begins in relationship to God. What kind of a relationship? A positive relationship, a relationship of obedience. This would be the response that Joshua would have wanted after his death. I'm sure he prayed, oh God, let these people continue to listen to you as they move forward. The Israelites listened to God. Again, specifically, the Israelites asked the Lord. And then what's the very last line in chapter 21, verse 25? This is the last line of the book. Everyone did as they saw fit. Everyone did as they saw fit. Just like Portland. (laughs) Now you're getting ahead of me here. (laughs) No, thank you, Kevin. That's where we're going to get to for sure. So it's this typical progression where things begin well and they end poorly. Going back to this illustration of marriage, isn't this sadly often the way that it goes? A young woman and a young man make a commitment to one another. They've fallen in love. They have high hopes for life. They believe that in the other, there's a tremendous partner, and we're going to work well together, and we're going to achieve what we want to achieve, and they cooperate well. Perhaps their walk with God is good, and they're praying together, and they're in the scriptures, and the intentions are great. And then we find two years later, seven years later, 20 years later, they do what's right in their own eyes, and it's not the same. What the man believes and what the woman believes is best is not the same. And then we have broken marriage at that point. And this is the way this book progresses. There are multiple episodes throughout the book of multiple judges, and you can almost chart this descending experience. And here's the challenge. Because of the authority given to a judge, there's a lot that they could do. And what tended to happen is they understood God's will, they understood the plan of God, but they also had some of their own desires and some of their own thoughts and some of their own agendas, and they mix the two together, and it becomes really difficult. And in the beginning, you can kind of see the clear agenda of God to purify the land. By the end of the book, you have agenda that does not belong to God, that is very broken and very heinous and very intense. Let's look at just one example. Again, in your Bibles, would you take a look with me at chapter... I believe it's chapter 7. If 
Here we go, chapter 7, beginning in verse 19. This judge is Gideon. Remind us just a little bit of the snippets of Gideon's calling. How did, that, how did Gideon go about being a judge? He started out poorly. He started out doubting. So we had this idea of a call. The chosen space was already there. Now it's time for a chosen leader, and Gideon chooses, or God chooses Gideon. Gideon doubts the choice, and God has to convince him. What does he do to be convinced? Yeah, he takes this little piece of lamb's uh, cloth uh, or wool, and he leaves it out and says, God, if you're really with me, because I'm kind of insecure here, would you make this wet, make the ground dry? Gets up in the morning, it happens, and then he goes, wait a minute, how does that normally work? If I normally leave out a fleece, would the fleece be wet in the ground? I'm not sure. But God, can we try it again? Let's slip it around. Uh, Let's make the fleece dry, ground wet. Happens, he's convinced. So he goes from being this... um, insecure leader, and by the end to where we get, you find out he's a very different man. So listen carefully, maybe follow along with me here in Judges chapter 7, verses 19 to 24. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp. So what's happened to get to here is he's going up against, I believe it's 10,000 people, uh, a Midianite army, and God has whittled his army down to 300 people. For God, it's so important that he understands that this is divine work, it's sacred work, it's not human work. They get down to 300, then the 300 are broken into three groups of 100. And then this divine, mysterious plan comes by the word of the Lord to Gideon. I want you to go out at night, and I want you to send out these three uh, troops of men, one to go direct, and one to flank from the left, and one to flank from the right, and just follow my Orders. And the orders are, at a certain time of night, I want you to take a torch and a trumpet. I want you to smash, uh, or I want you to uh, expose the torch. I want you to blow the trumpet. And I want you to watch my deliverance. So they do great. They obey. It's a wonderful thing. And they come in, middle of the night, they smash these jars. The torches are uh, lit and they're bright. These trumpets sound and the Midianites wipe out themselves. 10,000 troops turn on each other. They think this amazingly giant army has come and invaded and is already in the camp. And the person I can't see in the dark right now is my enemy. And it actually has, it's actually their, their fellow Midianites. And this is what happened. Now, we don't have the time to read it all. So I'm going to really bl- briefly explain to you what happens from here. Gideon begins to chase these men, and they chase them all the way to the Jordan River. And as they do it, he calls in other tribes, the Benjaminites and some others, to join them. And now they're on board because, hey, success is is happening. It's a good time to be a fan of this team because they're winning. They jump in and they chase with them. But as they're going, Gideon's men get very tired and very hungry, and he stops at a couple of places along the way, and he asks from his fellow Israelites for food and for drink. And they're refused. These, these guys say, hey, you haven't finished the job yet. When you finish the job, come back and we'll feed you then. So this other agenda is developing now. It's not the agenda of God, but Gideon is beginning to get frustrated and bitter. They finish the job. Then Gideon works his way back through the journey and begins to slaughter Israelites by the thousands. He begins to wipe out people from the tribe of Benjamin and people from the tribe. I'm not sure what the other one is. This is no longer the will of God. This judge is now judging for himself. This is self-righteousness. This is self-determination. 
This is judgment being cast not from God Almighty, but from a human perspective. And that's where the story gets bad. It gets worse as we get to the end, and that's where we come to the character you know as Samson. Again, such a mixed bag. He does the will of God in judging the Philistines and driving them out of the land, but his life is full of his own agenda and his own self and his own ego and his own experience. At this point, it's easy to say, these judges are the worst. These judges are horrible. And yet, we need to be careful. Listen to how the scriptures characterizes or comments on this reality. The writer, to the, book, uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews is recounting Jewish history, recounting the goodness of God, and going through this list of heroes uh, in the story of Israel. And here's the comment about judges. And what more shall we say, the writer says, I do not have to time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised. This is a very uh, euphemistic characterization, but it's not untrue, is it? I mean, the will of God was accomplished. They administered justice to the people of Israel within their clans, and they helped to drive out uh, the, the, other, the other tribes that were there and to purify the land. So they did the job. So there's praise for the obedience and there's praise for the accomplishment. But we know from the story there's also good reason to condemn or to suggest that clearly they did not do the will of God. So here's this mix of agenda. This is the book of Judges, and this is where we get to. Let's briefly take a look at the book of Ruth, and then I want to wrap this up with some thoughts about us and what does this mean for us. So, the book of Ruth. I'm just going to read two verses from chapter 1 that kind of are going to tell you why we're including Ruth and what it's about. So Ruth 1, verses 1 and 2. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, and hopefully just after Christmas, some of these names of cities and so forth are ringing a bell. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Moab is one of the tribes that's being driven out of the land of Canaan. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Milan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem of Judea, and they went to Moab to live there. And without explaining too much, and you know this story, but I want to remind you, this is the story of this family that migrates from the land of Israel because of famine and heads to the land of Moab where there's food. And while they're there, the two sons find wives, and life gets better for them for a brief time. There are these three men and three women, all blood-related, living close by one another, and then the husband and the two sons die. And from here, and this is, this is not a parable, but this is a true story, uh, Naomi now has herself and these two sisters, um, sister-in-laws, and they need to be supported. In this culture, you needed a man 
to farm for you, to protect you, to provide for you, and they didn't have that. And so Ruth decides to return to the nation, to the land of Canaan because things are going better there. She says to her two daughter-in-laws, I want to release you. You should probably go back to your families to be well provided for. Just go start over again, find a new husband, and create a new life. One daughter is willing to do that. Her name is Orpha. By the way, Oprah Winfrey was named after that woman, but they spelled it wrong. It's actually Orpha, but they named her Oprah. So, fun fact. Yeah. So, anyway, so Naomi returns to the land of Canaan and brings with her Ruth. Ruth has said, I love you. Where you go, that's where I want to go. And where you find a home, that's going to be my home. I have grown to love you. And so Ruth goes back. Short story, God provides through them, and uh, Ruth eventually gets married to someone in the line of Israel and actually in the line of David. And so we have this Moabite woman who would have been considered an enemy of Israel is actually brought into the line of David and the line of Jesus Christ and becomes an ancestor of the deliverer, of the one who will crush the enemy's heel. The beautiful thing about Ruth is we finally get to see the heart of God. In Judges, we begin a little bit with the heart of God, and yet it's a harsh heart. Not a hard heart, but a harsh heart, an appropriate one and a just one. But we really see too much of the hearts of human leaders. We see men and women who take advantage of the authority that they are given and who use it not only for the agenda of God, but for their own agenda as well. But then Ruth is this redeeming story where we have an Israelite that falls in love with a Moabite woman, an enemy, and actually invites her in. And you know this, God is saying, this is my heart. I'm not setting you up as an exclusive nation to destroy the other nations. I'm just creating a stronghold where my principles and who I am can be seen and you can live with me and you can be a witness to the rest of the world. And then when that stronghold is, is established, we will invite the rest of the world in. And we will say, come, come, let us share with you. Let us explain to you our relationship with Yahweh. Let us show you that a way to live in creation in harmony with it through our commandments and through our principles that God has given us. Let us show you the good life. This is Jesus. I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. I created the earth. I wrote the manual. Come and learn. This is what God is attempting to create in the land of Israel. Why do these three movements not succeed? Adam and Eve, Noah's family, the nation of Israel. They don't succeed because the heart of humans is not good. The heart of humans is mixed. On the one hand, it's the image of God, it's the love of God, it's the tenderness and the innocence of God and the kindness of God. But mixed in that heart is also selfishness and violence and all kinds of evil that we don't even need to list. It's just too bad to talk about. This is who we are. God did not fail in those three movements, but humanity failed God. God invited humanity into partnership. Come with me. I'll create a sacred space. I will call you and choose you by name. I will provide well for you. I will give you a mission, and on that mission, I will accomplish it with you. And together, we will come that people might have life and might have it abundantly. The good news is, Jesus, <laughs> the good news is there's a fourth movement. This fourth movement. 
And that movement is us. Let's take a look at that slide again about those five elements uh, that are there. The five elements. So in this fourth movement of God, what is the sacred space created through Jesus Christ? The church. However you feel about it, the church is the sacred space that God has created to fulfill his redemptive purposes. Who are the chosen people? Us, absolutely. And this is, this is a change I really want us to hear today. In the, in the previous three movements, there were kind of celebrities and kind of leaders that stood alone and apart from the people. That culture is very different now in Christ. In Christ, we are all the people. We are all the leaders. We are all the chosen. We are all the gifted. And it's a very flat leadership. We are called to lead one another. No more Moses, no more Joshua. It's just Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, and disciples. What is the mission in this fourth movement? What's that? Make disciples. You're a disciple, make more disciples. What's the abundant provision? The Holy Spirit. Oh, good answer, right? (laughs) The scriptures right? And each other. Each other. And Paul works so hard to drive this home. You've been called to fulfill the mission of God in Jesus Christ as a family, as a local church. You've been called to do it together. And what's the final promise? Divine partnership. Jesus said, I will be with you at every moment until the end of this era. I will be with you, divine partnership. And that is tied up in that provision of the Holy Spirit. Where, and this is my final question, where is there intersection between this fourth movement and the brokenness and the sadness of the book of Judges? Is there any overlap? (laughs) There's still people. There's still incomplete people. There's still evil in the world, and there's still evil in us, right? We're still those people, thanks, yeah. I look forward to the day when we can hear one another clearly. (laughs) But, yeah, and this is where it overlaps. Now, here's the big sad part. In the book of Judges, the evil and the brokenness is very apparent. It's not hidden at all. It's entirely external. No one is hiding their feelings. No one is keeping their hatred in their hearts. They are expressing their hatred outwardly. They're taking life. They're murdering. They're doing horrible things, and we'll get there soon enough. (laughs) But we are more sophisticated. We, the humans of today. And so we are against violence, and we are against heinous crime, and we are against evil. And yet, are we that different? Or are the seeds still there? Are the feelings still there? Is the agenda for what I want being more important than what someone else wants? And therefore, I will take. And therefore, I will use. And therefore, I will abuse. This is still who we are. And so I want us to go easy as we go through the book of Judges on the people of Judges. And before we judge, ask Does this remind me of me at all? Does this remind me of us at all? Now, here's the super good news. We live in the post-coming of Jesus Christ. 
At the time of the judges, they could only look forward to salvation. They could only look forward to being purified in their hearts. They could only look forward to a day when human hearts could actually be softened and the Spirit of God would not just be with someone, but would be in them. We live in a very different era. So on the one hand, we need to recognize our broken humanity in the judges. But on the other hand, we need to fully embrace that we live in the age of Jesus Christ. And we are called not just to minimize doing bad things, but actually to be transformed on the inside. To have that heart of violence, that heart of bitterness, that heart of woundedness, that heart of selfishness reshaped. And to be truly like Jesus to some degree. So that more than ever in human history, the likeness of God could actually be reflected in the likeness of humans. It happens sometimes in celebrities and for moments, but the call of God to the church to the day is that our lives daily would actually be good reflections of the person of Jesus Christ. And that's our great hope. But what we want to do as we go through these books is just ask the question, where is evil still here? And where, in I li- when I live my life, is there still my own agenda? I want you to land with this one thought, and this is where we're going to go into worship. God said something 120 years before he destroyed humanity through the flood. He said, my spirit will not contend with humanity forever. And I think that kind of sums up everything that we're talking about. The heart of God is for absolute goodness and beauty and order. That's who he is, and that's what he does. And his call and his intention and his plan has always been to share that and to reproduce that in humanity. And he calls us to beauty and to order and to goodness. That's what he, and throughout human history, there's been this great contention between God and people and between people and people. And Kevin, you tipped your hat to this when we started off. It's certainly evident today. I would say contention is often a primary a primary characterization of the atmosphere in our country. Or it's very easy to get to contention quickly, depending on the topic that you choose to talk about. That is not us. We are called away from contention. We are called to harmony with God and then harmony with others as well. And this is where we want to get to. We don't want to contend with God. And we don't want to contend with each other. And we don't want to contend with other humans. It's not our calling to be contentious. It's not our calling to be contentious. Our calling is to a mission, to make disciples. Our calling is to shalom in this space. And I don't mean the community center. I mean us. We need to eradicate contention, whatever that means. And we need to invite shalom and harmony and wholeness and connectedness, right? And through Christ, it's entirely possible to move in that direction through the power of the Holy Spirit. But we need to be faithful to the call.